And thanks for joining the Joshua Nation's Inheritance Podcast, where we discuss God, the Bible, and God's purpose for your life. Be inspired and encouraged to engage in transforming the world around you. Good afternoon. Today it's my privilege to introduce Dr. Wes King, who's been a missionary around the world. I know uh, that he's been in Swaziland and uh, currently in Ecuador, also been in Panama and um, in Japan. Oh yes, the islands too. I forgot the islands. But what is more significant to me about this interview is that he's not only Dr. King, the missionary, I also get to call him dad because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have my lovely wife. My wife is his daughter. Dad, can you tell us why missions and where does the heart for missions come from? I decided to be a missionary when I was about five years old, and it never changed. God put that calling on my life. Uh, He just led me step by step. When I was ready to enter university training, then I had to decide what brand of missionary was I going to be. Was I going to be the preacher type, uh, evangelist, or maybe a doctor, teacher? And God made it evident that I was to be a doctor. So I entered pre-medical training in my university, got through medical school, did my internship in Panama, Canal Zone, up to Northern California for some more training, and then we were off as missionaries to Africa. Swaziland, right? Swaziland, the name has been changed to protect the innocent. Yeah, which is now Iswatini. Iswatini, yeah. yes. Yes, it's no more Swaziland. Swaziland. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I haven't heard too many people kind of classify the brand of missionaries. Um, but So you had a call to the nations, but you didn't know exactly how God was going to use you. But what age did you determine or figure out that you were going to be a medical doctor as a missionary? About age 18. Yeah. That's when I asked God, you know, which way, and he, he let me know. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I remember when God called me to missions, and I was, uh, I was very, very young also, but I didn't know what that looked like and kind of ran from it for a while. I don't know if I've ever considered what brand of missionary I am, but uh, looking back, I think I'm the, the teacher kind. You're definitely the teacher kind, yes. All right. Definitely. Hopefully it's uh, going for a good purpose. Well, tell me, uh, you know, out of all the different nations, you've got, you know, a world of experience. What has been the place that you love the most or been the most challenging, uh, and why is that? Well, Swaziland was the most uh, challenging. I was uh, a young doctor, had good training, but dropped into the middle of a rather large hospital, about 300 bed hospital. Then the head surgeon decides to go on vacation and wow, who's the surgeon? Oh, get a mirror and find out, I guess. I loved it because of the challenge. It was a wonderful challenge. And there also some, saw some beautiful things happen there in Swaziland. One of my favorite stories uh, around him, and of course, uh, when you're uh, around the mission world, you 
you see all types and see all kinds of people and meet all kinds of people, uh, mostly good. Dr. King, can you tell us about the gentleman that spoke uh, Swazi in the Oklahoman accent? <laughs> well, uh, when we arrived there, we were encouraged to learn to speak the language. Siswati, which is a dialect of Zulu, and Zulu or either one, they were understandable. So as sort of a, a goal to aspire to, we were pointing to a gentleman, a missionary from Oklahoma, and he had studied Zulu exclusively for one full year, gone away to, you know, Zulu, and just that's all he did, studied Zulu for a year. So he spoke, you know, he spoke full Zulu, could preach in Zulu and all that. So he was our example. I had no such opportunity. The doc, uh, the medical need was too imminent and I was thrust right into work. So I had a little notepad in my pocket and I would write down words of, of, of what to say. And, you know, and I, in the four years, I grew to generally understand what the people were saying to me as a doctor. Of course, they were telling me about, you know, their diarrhea and their stomach cramps and their their cough and their, you know, fever and things like that. So I learned medical Zulu, I guess you could call it. But the longer I was there, uh, I would, and I began to listen to this gentleman and um, I thought, how on earth do these people understand him? But I, I was under, understood by the people and I worked hard to try to say it as, as good as I could. And, and to say hello or greeting, whatever time of the day, you just, there was just one word. You didn't have to worry about afternoon or morning or anything. It was just the greeting of, I see you there. And you said, Salbona. Which translates, yeah, perfect. It translates into, I see you. Yeah, and that was how you greeted people. Salbona, how are you? Kunjani, I'm fine. Ninkona, Kunjani Wena, and how are you? It's been a lot of years, but it's still You're there. Pretty, isn't it? You're doing pretty well. Then I heard Mr. Human, he came. And the way he spoke Zulu, you could guess from what part of the world he came. In his case, Oklahoma. Sailbona, Johnny, and so forth. And it was, <laughs> and uh, anyway, he spoke Zulu with a Oklahoma accent. That's funny. Uh, I grew up in Texas and spent most of my life in Texas, and so we have uh, we have Spanglish in Texas, and uh, probably pretty common for any Americans who are trying to learn or speak Spanish. But uh, with the thick Texas or Oklahoma accents, hearing people try to pronounce Spanish words or any other word, I've, I've been in 72 countries and I've taken a lot of people with me. And uh, that we always try to learn some greetings or always. some yeah. kind of yeah. way to connect with people, in, at least in a few words. But I laugh every time I hear those accents uh, that are over-accentuated in another language. It's hilarious. Yeah, there's another thing that Doc King was uh, very good at, and uh, he memorized the praise name for the Swazi king. Um, 
let's see in his ripe old age if he can do that still uh, i haven't done this for a while let me see i'm putting you on the spot here well the in in zulu and swazi you have your name your like your last name but it's a group of names really you have the one you just sort of use you know on your checks and things but then there are other names associated praise names that go along with it and then of course the king had even more than anyone else and my name is my last name is king so the swazi people had a lot of fun with my name sometimes they would call me by the name king in in swazi and i i really like being Nkos. it's just literally king and that's one of the, the names for the king but Slamini was the name of the of the king Slamini, and uh or that's the the first one i maybe should say and correct me willie whatever i'm saying incorrectly so on occasion they would look at me and say, Tlamini. And the whole room would laugh because I was very white and they were dark-skinned, beautiful people. And I obviously was not Tlamini, but they would do it just for fun. And it was quite enjoyable. So one of the Tlaminis that I worked with uh, was quite a cool guy. And he taught me some of the Tlamini names, which actually are not meant to be spoken to people of uh, white skin kind of thing. They're to be spoken, you know, in the, in the culture more. Uh, but Nkos, Lamini, Wenawagunene, Wenawabokele Logutle and Puntini, I've lost a few teeth, so it's hard to speak Zulu. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's good. I was just seeing if you could still do that. Uh, can um, you do it? Yeah. You remember? Nope. You can't? Nope. No? Okay. Nope. Well, I was born on the border of Swaziland, not in Swaziland. So, not my king. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always interesting in other cultures how people ascribe names of value, of description. And, uh, you know, here in America, we don't really do so much. We have maybe like a pet name that you might call your spouse or your child uh, or terms of endearment. But to ascribe uh, names of value and praise, I think that's awesome. That's what we see in Scripture. I mean, our God has so many different names that ascribe value to him and uh, speak about his character and his nature and his attributes. So I think that's absolutely fascinating. There's so many I, awesome Yeah, names. I know. The, uh, the Jehovah names, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, all of those, the names for our God are beautiful. They are. They are. I think if we did a better job within uh, the body of Christ uh, teaching people those things, then we'd have a better understanding of who God is and who he is to us. Yeah, that's awesome. That's I believe that. That's awesome. So in all your years of experience, now you are... Um, living and ministering in the nation of Ecuador. How did you get there? And tell us what you do in Ecuador. How did I get to Ecuador? Yeah. I, it was a 757, I believe, that took me there. Yeah. That's, that's good. I'm glad it made it there. Or otherwise, you wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I, I was on a plane recently, and I look out the window, and I try to get the exit row seats because I'm tall and need somewhere to put my legs. I looked out, and I saw some a wonderful airline duct tape keeping things together and man that was sure reassuring uh you know with uh, covid times and uh, all the airlines on budget i'm just wondering you know how they're cutting corners and trying to make a dollar here and there but it's duct scary. tape <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 
Well, it's not as bad as the time that I went into Cuba on a charter plane for Miami. I was sitting in the front row of this little little one one seat aisle one seat plane, and I could stick my finger in the hole between the door and the wall. It was not pressurized; like there was like a wind gust going through. Fortunately, we were up and down in about thirty minutes. But I literally stuck my finger in there, and I could feel the air, the outside air going. Oh, through. that's incredible. I don't even, it's probably not legal. I don't know. Maybe because it's just a charter, they were able to, you know, rocket us up like a paper airplane. I'm not even sure how we took off. Could have been a giant rubber band. But so tell us how you are ministering and what you got going on in Ecuador. You get to a point as the doctor where, you know, properly speaking, you need to, you know, not be doing that anymore because you, you're not as sharp and as you used to be. And also it's very a very strenuous uh, occupation in general. So looking ahead to the, uh, what, what would you call it? The end of my life. Uh, God built a vision in my heart of ministering to children, street kids, orphans that needed a home. And the scripture in uh, James always just, jumped out at me pure religion and undefiled is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress and of course to walk humbly with our lord so that just became the goal i work was working as in emergency medicine in oregon at that time and closed the doors to that job and uh, retired i guess is the word except I never really retired because I then went to Ecuador on the 757, as I mentioned earlier, I'm sure that's important. The Lord led me to some land, purchased the land, built built a home, a large structure home on, on some property there and took in, took in street kids and orphans. It was never a huge thing but we had a family of kids that were in need, yeah. And uh, most of them now in the 20 years have are, have grown up and so they're out and around and some of them still live there, you know, close by and they have their own families. So it's, uh, that's where home is for me. So you're here with us in Colorado, but you're ready to get back to Ecuador. Yes, tomorrow, please. <laughs> Yeah, I've got the, the privilege to know many of the orphans, and they're really well-adjusted young men. As far as I know, most of them really love God, and they're, they're still serving Him. But there's some interesting stories in there, too. One of my favorite characters, a young boy by the name of Christian. And there was a time that I know the cartel was either after your property, or you guys had to make a run for it. That's an interesting story. Can you That's a long tell one. me that? Well, you've got the gift of gap, so we'll just edit it for you if we need to. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that remark. Well, one of the boys that came to live with was named, he, he used the name Christian. His given name was Diego, but there were too many Diegos everywhere he went. So he or someone else just took the name Christian and he... And he came to me, he was a little kid named black skinned boy from the country of Colombia, 
or do we say as Americans, we say Columbia. But anyway, when he came to us, he said, uh, you know, how was it that you, you know, came out of Colombia and you're here in Ecuador, adjoining countries? And he said, well, I had to run because they were trying to kill me. And I thought, oh, sure. You know, that's a good story. You're, you're a good story, little kid. You know, I, do I really believe you? No, I didn't say that, but I thought that. That was how it was until some years later, he's now, you know, uh, in his late teens, and I'm talking to him, and I said, okay, tell, tell me about the story when you were in Colombia. And he told me, and my eyes grew big, and my jaw dropped, and I thought, oh, wow, they were trying to kill you. He grew up in the cocaine growing area where the where the guerrillas fighting and and a lot of people dying a dangerous place. He went to live with the guerrillas. He was sort of like their little pet kind of thing, a little kid. They taught him how to shoot guns and throw grenades and yeah, they were teaching him the whole thing of how to be a a fighter. But at this stage he was actually a a child soldier, right? Yeah, he's yeah, that's right. He's a because child. He was just a child at that stage. Yes, that's correct. At one point, he was in some town, and the paramilitaries who were fighting the guerrillas, and he got taken in for an interview for him to give information on about the guerrillas and where they were and so forth, because he had been there and they knew that, so they interrogated him, and he he didn't say anything. He was closed-mouthed and didn't, didn't give away any military secrets, but he came out of the meeting, and the, I mean, the guerrillas, they're mingling with the population. I mean, they're not, they're not in uniform all the time. Sometimes they're just walking along like a regular person. You don't know that they're a part of that organization. And they see him coming out of that. And shortly after that, the paramilitaries uh, managed to nab two of the main leaders of the guerrillas, and they executed him or shot him on the spot, whatever it was. Okay, and just to get clarity, how old is Christian at this day? 13, 12? He's about 10. 10. The paramilitaries, or the guerrillas rather, are putting two and two together, or what they think is two and two, and they think, oh, he spilled the beans. He told them where those guys, mm. they got killed. He's the best. So he, you know, so they literally came to find him, to kill him, to shoot him and kill him. And so he ran for his life. He was hiding in the back end of a pickup truck, hunkered down, running out of the country. Hmm. It's quite a story. I did put it into a book. So when you guys found one another, um, when, when, when you found Christian or he found you, he was living on the streets in... Ambato? Ambato, yeah. Uh-huh. This is in Ecuador? Yeah. So he made his way all the way from Colombia over to Ecuador. Can you imagine being a little 10-year-old and ending up in another country that you don't know anybody, and you're just 10 years old? I, I just take my own kids and I put them in the same situation, and, I, and, and, I, and it just kind of blows your mind. Well, as I say, I didn't believe him, but later on in life, he told me the story. I thought, wow. You were telling me the truth. They were going to kill you. Yeah. And that's that's the story of one of my boys. Christian Diego, also called Diego, is currently living in Banos, uh, not too far from uh, our mission. And uh, he has two little, he has a family, two little girls. 
and being a responsible father and and really has a hunger to follow God and so it's that it's a joy it's really amazing I have a good friend who uh, he is a pastor in the nation of Rwanda and uh, his name is Wilson Rudigingwa but he he ran he's he's in his I think he's in his late 60s now but he ran from every civil war and conflict through Rwanda Uganda Tanzania that, that whole region at some point um, throughout his entire life has been in conflict. And he was telling me a similar kind of story where he was somewhere around nine or 10 years old and basically began his life as a nomad escaping war. Uh, but the Lord has used him incredibly. You know, later on in life, uh, he received the Lord and then ended up being discipled and, and became a pastor later on in life. But what a what a precious man! I think there's more stories like this that we just don't hear of being in the West. And you know, Jason, what is what is really um, impactful to me is these guys grow up like this, and 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 they've got all the opportunity to have hate and unforgiveness in their hearts. And uh, once Jesus touches you, you forgive. And uh, a lot of these guys end up going back to their nations and having others come to Christ under their own ministries, yeah. which is really awesome. And, and so we sit here in the Western world and um, somebody drives in front of you and you have hate for them over something that's really menial. And maybe that's a, a dumb uh, example, but you know, somebody says something against you and, and then we struggle with issues of hate. And these guys really struggle through life and come through it and, and understanding the redemption of Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross for us. Absolutely. But, uh, I don't know how old you are, and I won't disclose your age or ask your age, but you got okay. you got a few years of experience past a billion. I'm 94. Right? I'm 94, <laughs> sure you are. But uh, would you <laughs> would you share with us uh, what has been some of the key things that's helped you stay the course uh, being faithful to God's call in your life? Well, in Swaziland, now I'm in my, you know, I'm about 30 years old or so. I'm a doctor working hard in the hospital, starting an English church in town, come in contact with a young man of about 20 years of age, and he's deeply troubled, and I treat him in the hospital for some suicide attempts. Later on, God uses, used me and others in uh, seeing him delivered of demonic possession, but I wasn't aware at that time that that was what was going on. And uh, I became extremely depressed, severely, not just mildly. I mean, severely, almost to the point of not being able to function. I got down to the point where I, I was so depressed, I couldn't hear God's voice. God was for practical purposes, dead. I tried to read the Bible, it was dead. I tried to pray, just empty words, bouncing on the walls. I was, I got down, 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 down to the bottom. And the enemy came in and said, just give up. There's nothing there, just give up, just give up. And you know, Jason, I got down there to the bottom and what I found there was a person called Jesus. I had no, feeling 
of spirituality, no, you know, nothing. I was so dead emotionally, emotionally, spiritually. It was demonic oppression is what it was causing my depression and uh, which I didn't know at that point. But I got down there and the enemy says, give up. And then I turned and I saw the face of Jesus. I'm not talking about a vision. I'm just talking about the Jesus that is there, the one who gave his life for me. And I said, well, maybe I said to the devil, I don't know. I said to myself and whoever was listening at that point, I said, no, I can't give up because I know Jesus is there. I know Jesus. I don't feel him. I don't. At the end of my rope, Jesus was there. And then God led me out of that. Uh, but that oppression, that intense depression, clinically, you would call it a psychologist, psychiatrist would call it a depression. And it was a depression, it was accurate, but it was, in my case, it was pretty much 100% demonic oppression. I won't tell you the story, but I was given, uh, sort of like given a word of knowledge by another person and my depression vanished wow. in, a, in an instant That's of time. Awesome. It just fell off like a rock. And it was then it was just a memory. It yeah. was and God, everything was back to normal. But when when I was released from that oppression to the point that as a doctor, even in the States, uh, when people would come to me, that were depressed and that's a lot of people very common still is i always i mean there are many causes of depression which are we won't go into here now but i'm speaking medically in that sense but and i understand all those uh, reasons for depression and there are medications and things that help with depression but I always prayed with my patients, took authority over spirits of depression. And I had one lady in Oregon, when we prayed, her depression vanished. And I'm not saying that's a cure-all, and that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say, when a person is depressed, always take authority and pray. Whatever degree the enemy is using that, or causing it, either one, why there's power in the name of Jesus to deliver us from that. Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> I think I think everybody at some point has struggled with some kind of discouragement or even depression. By God's grace, I've never been at that level before, but uh, there is such a wonderful and incredible power in the name of Jesus. Yes. And uh, we're not making a medical statement, or I'm not making any medical statements, because uh, there is true um, chemical imbalances and depression that needs to be treated medically. Uh, but we know this. God is, he is the great physician. He is our deliverer. And with him, um, we are overcomers. Sometimes that happens uh, spiritually as we are attacked. And other times, uh, the Lord uses medicine and counsel and others to encourage us and help us get out of those places. But uh, with him, all things are possible. 
And I believe that uh, there's probably many people who struggle that aren't willing to share uh, that they've ever reached that point. And I thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that with us. I think uh, when I, I know for many years, when I look at missionaries, they're like my superheroes. And uh, I think many of them are, are beyond temptation, beyond struggle, beyond failure. But uh, the reality is, is missionaries, pastors, ministers, no matter what brand of uh, person in the Christian leadership world, or even as a marketplace leader, everybody is human and struggles with the same kinds of things at some point or another. But what do you see for your next season here? In, uh... Well, we will be going back to Ecuador shortly. We want to partner with y'all. Thanks for using y'all. <laughs> you spoke to my Texan. <laughs> and open up a training center in Banos. No, God wants to do something really big there. We're just all excited. When will we find out? When will we see it? Yeah. You know, so we're just full of excitement because we know God wants to bring in an end time harvest there in Ecuador and, and South America. And God is moving in many different areas. And we just want to be a part of it and, and go with the flow in the case, the Holy Spirit flow. Amen. That's the, that's the best thing to do. Uh, our ministry over the last 13 years has, has really been riding the wave of the Holy Spirit. It's nothing special about us. It's just about being obedient and going where, where the Lord by his Holy Spirit would send us. And earlier on, Billy's talked about us praying for South America. The Lord has been putting South America on our hearts. We've had new open doors in Brazil and uh, Colombia, and uh, now uh, opportunity to partner with you in Ecuador. Um, I think uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit is saying something special. So we will continue to dialogue and explore uh, what the Lord would have us do together. And yes, it's time for the end time harvest, I do believe. And as we look around the world that the signs are showing that uh, we are near to completing the Great Commission, and that is so very exciting uh, as we get to that point, because once we get there, then we can start looking up, and, and hopefully we can uh, see with our own eyes Amen. the return of Jesus. Amen. Just this very morning, I was talking with one of my boys, who uh, I call him my boys. He's a grown man, but he lives there on the compound. Francisco is his name. And I was talking with him and he said, do you notice, Grandpa, do you notice anything different? He's talking Spanish, of course. Uh, he knows a little English, but we talk in Spanish. And I said, well, yeah, you look older. And I was missing the fact he wasn't wearing his glasses. He was out working in the garden and his glasses got dirty and he went up to clean them off. And he was looking around and realized he could see well without his glasses. God miraculously wow. healed him of his nearsightedness, just put a blink and restored him to full normal vision. Hallelujah. That's not a very impressive story, I guess, to get mud, get dirt in your eyes and then be able to, well, I guess that could be scripture. Hey, I would receive that, that yeah. as impressive. <laughs> I, have a, I have a very strong astigmatism and I've had contact since I was 15 and without them, I'm in a pretty bad shape. 
So yeah, that's a significant miracle. In my it was. Opinion. It's beautiful. That was just a story. I believe we're going to see a lot of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I really do. I really believe Holy Spirit is going to be see, moving. At the end of in, the day, Jesus doesn't need us. He wants to use us, and He chooses to use us, uh, but He doesn't need us. And uh, no, Holy Spirit does a pretty good job all by Himself. Well, Scripture says that uh, His kingdom will be established, and that the zeal of the Lord of Hosts will perform this. But yet he still says that he's called us to be co-laborers in the harvest. So, That's right. yes, can God do it? Absolutely. But he's invited us yeah. to partner with him. Yeah. So uh, I am so grateful for your time today and uh, for sharing some of your stories and your heart for missions and the Lord. But uh, I need to close this podcast. If you've been listening to this and uh, you've been uh, touched in your heart, whether uh, the Lord wants to deliver you and heal you from something uh, to bring a life of hope and joy instead of discouragement or depression. Or maybe God has called you to join in a journey with him to go to the mission field. Maybe it's none of those. I don't know. No matter what, God has called you to partner with him in his great commission and to see the harvest. So uh, thank you for your time, Dr. King. I thank you for your heart for the Lord and for missions. Uh, we look forward to seeing what God's going to do in Ecuador as we partner together. Yeah, Bo. I don't know what that means, but hey, uh, why don't you close us in uh, some Afrikaans, Billy? Bless us. Baie dankie vir hierdie tyd. Ons het dit geniet. En as ons jou nie nou sien nie, dan sien ons mekaar weer in die hemel. Amen. If we don't see one another now, we'll definitely see one another in heaven. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you. Hope you have a great day. Thank you for joining Joshua Nations on this episode of the Inheritance Podcast. For more information about the ministry of Joshua Nations, please go to www.joshuanations.org. To join our prayer movement, please go to prayer.joshuanations.org. We hope you will join us for the next episode of the Joshua Nations Inheritance Podcast. May God bless you.